Alright. To take up our study. Proverbs chapter 1. Verse 20. Wisdom crieth out. She uttereth her voice in the streets. She crieth in the chief place of concourse. In the openings of the gates. In the city she uttereth her words saying. How long ye simple ones. Will ye love simplicity. And the scorners delight. In their scorning. And fools hate knowledge. How long will fools hate knowledge? We are surely in a generation of fools. Because the hatred of knowledge seems to abound. We are taking up a study, and I emphasize that. I want to emphasize it again. I said it on the last meeting. And uh, I want to emphasize again that this is a study. Many of my, much of what I had to say in the last session was uh, really random, uh, random comments regarding study regarding knowledge, regarding theology, various things. I said that I said to you then that I had a number of things that I wanted to say, uh, not from specifically from our study, but more or less setting some groundwork in the, the matter of, of what we are doing. That is, we are studying. I want to say again, in case you missed the first time also, that uh, while I have uh, 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 seen to it that we all have the book uh, that we are going to be using and going through, uh, we are not just going through this book. I'm using Goldsworthy Goldsworthy's trilogy for the for the foundation, something of the outline. The, of, of where I'm going, what I'm doing, what I want to deal with. But I'll be bringing in a lot of other things, and I am not just strictly going through his book. Uh, there, there's, uh, as I say, it's, it's foundational, it's instrumental, and, and I intend to, to cover the material that he covers more or less. But it is, it is not intended to just be going through his book. That's not what we're doing. Going to be doing other things. Rutherford, in the, the book that Luke published, uh, this is one of the comments, <clears throat> one of the quotes that uh, Rutherford <clears throat> said. <clears throat> he said, If ye lost time and were the long in beginning, or, and were too long in beginning, be like a man far behind, when he looks to the sun and sees it low and remembers how far he has to go, he sets the spurs to the horse. So rouse up your lazy souls and post 
post, post, heaven is waiting for you. I don't know what all Rutherford had in mind, and I don't know altogether the context of that statement, but I wanted to bring it to bear on our study because he said, if you have already lost time, and I want to apply this to your study, your knowledge. I read of Proverbs about the fools despising knowledge. If you've lost time and were too long in beginning, Rutherford said, then be like the man that looks, he's on a journey, he's riding his horse, and he looks and he sees that the sun is nearly setting. And he realizes he's got a long way to go. What's he going to do? He's going to put the spurs inside of that horse and post. He's going to move more quickly. Many of us, many of us, and that's especially me, are very late beginning and have been too long. And the sun is setting. And we need to post. We need to move at a faster pace. Put the spurs to our souls and post. I mentioned this book last week. I, I think I mentioned, I don't remember exactly what I said about it, but uh, McEwen, uh, McEwen's uh, treatment, Scottish preacher's treatment of the uh, types and figures in the Old Testament. And there was a quote uh, not written by McEwen, uh, but by his, uh, by the gentleman who wrote the uh, preface to this, uh, to his uh, book, which is uh, interesting. He says this. I, I took this little excerpt out of the uh, preface to to this particular uh, facsimile reproduction of William McEwen's book, Grace and Truth. He said, as the discourse itself, uh, that is the treatment of uh, in the book, as the discourse itself is not of the argumentative kind, it is taken for granted as a preliminary maxim that the grand doctrines of Christianity concerning the mediation of Christ and the inestimable blessing of his purchase were typically, that is by type, manifested to the church, talking about the Old Testament, under a variety of ceremonies, persons, and events under the Old Testament dispensation. It is true there are some who affect to call this truth in question and yet pretend to be the friends of a divine revelation. But with what sincerity? It is not difficult to perceive. To suppose that the gospel is a new invention, to suppose that the gospel, as we find it in the New Testament, especially in the four gospel records, is a new invention, and hatched in the age of the apostles, 
or that the religion of Jews and Christians are entirely different is signally injurious to them both. For as a living creature, when cut in two, will seem at first to preserve some faint remains of life in both its parts. But in a short time, it will totally expire. So if the system of true religion be cut asunder, as so many do, by declaring the Old Testament to be completely different, separate and distinct from the New Testament. If the system of true religion be cut asunder and the faith of the Jews be wholly severed and detached from the faith of Christians, instead of having one religion of Jews and another of Christians, we shall in reality have no true religion at all surviving. Just like if you cut an animal in two, he says, for a little while it'll appear, his life will appear to remain in both parts, but soon enough, <laughs> there'll be no part in either, there'll be no life in either part. And so it is for those who would sever the Old Testament from, from us as if the New Testament somehow contains a new gospel. I remember many, many years ago, I don't have this in my notes, and I don't remember, uh, I'd have to look in my Bible and find, uh, I kind of keep notes of things that come to me so that I have a date to put on it. But many years ago, I remember the first time I ran into that text, and some of you may know it, the reference, I, I'm not good with references, uh, it speaks of the church in the wilderness. Was that Peter? Was that First Peter? Or somewhere it talks about the church in the wilderness. <laughs> and I remember the first time I encountered that phrase, I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Church? In the wilderness? What in the world? Uh, because at the time I believed that the church came into existence in the New Testament under the works of the apostles. But scripture speaks of the church in wilderness. That was his elect people congregated together in the Old Testament. But of course, that's that is the unity. You see the unity and consistency of it. What did you find that reference, Luke, in case somebody wants it? Okay. We'll just I just want to give it out in case anybody wants to have a have a look see at that. I remember the first time I encountered it, it, it uh it pretty much uh blew me away. <laughs> All right. So, uh, chapter one of, of, uh, Gold's, Goldworthy's trilogy, chapter one, and, and let me clear something up too, because I was, uh, informed that was probably not the best thing. I, I said to you, don't read ahead of me, don't read the book ahead. 
But of course you can. You can read ahead if you please. It's not going to hurt me. It's not going to change anything I'm doing. But I just want to try to introduce some of this to ourselves in class, as a class, so that we can have some lively discussion along the way, I hope. But, yeah, what's the reference? Acts chapter 7. This is that Moses, the son of the children of Israel, the prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you your brother, like unto me, him shall be here. This is he that was in the church, in the wilderness, with the angels which spake to him in the mouth of Simon. Amen. He was in the church, in the wilderness. Acts 7 what? 7.38. 7.38. All right, there's a reference in case you want it. All right. So he he uh, Goldsworthy titled this first lecture. Why well, read the Old Testament? I, I I like my own title. I, I title it "Who Needs the Old Testament?" <laughs> Who needs the Old Testament anyway? I mean, that's actually a question you sometimes hear among uh, professing Christians. They honestly, they honestly ask, who needs the Old Testament? Well, he begins with some of the reasons why people ignore the Old Testament. I actually, again, I go a step further. Uh, I'd like for us to look at some of the reasons why the Old Testament is not just ignored, it's positively despised by modern professing Christians. So why why is that? Why would that why would that be? Well, here's some of the valuable material that Goldsworthy uh, put together to answer that question. Number one, he talks about the intellectual climate of the nineteenth century. Now, some of our, some of you, Brother John, my wife, uh, some of you know far more than I do about history, and you could stand here right now and just extemporaneously, you could have a great deal to say to us about this this phenomenon, this uh, that 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 the. That the climate of the 19th century was, I could use the words, very progressive, certainly, uh, evolutionary, uh, humanistic. I mean, there's a lot of just kind of great, big, huge generalizations we could say about about that period of time. And as I say, these folks could flesh that out for you with intricate detail. Uh, about it, but I'm not interested in studying the 19th century per se, but it is important for all of us to learn and the children learn in school. They learn all these histories of various things in these periods. In the 19th century, there was what Goldsworthy used the, the terminology intellectual climate. It was a very unique and interesting intellectual climate which said that the Christianity of the New Testament, in other words, it was a scholastic 
Greeks, purely scholastic. The new the, the Christianity of the New Testament, they would say, resulted from the natural evolution of theistic thinking. So therefore, that makes the Old Testament obsolete. The Old Testament is, is obsolete simply because uh, intellectualism during that period of time looked at Revelation not as we do. We see the scriptures as the product of divine inspiration. Message from God, progressive, what we call progressive revelation. Uh, but the unbelieving world of the 19th century, not looking through the eyes of a believer, looking through the eyes of purely intellectualism and soulless religion, they saw Christianity as a development that was the product of an evolution of theistic thinking. And so if the New Testament, by their view, understand from their point of view, that if you... It, it, once you come to the New Testament, if this is the if this is the last and final version, so to speak, if this is the ultimate version of this theistic religion, well, once you get to the Old Testament, then you no longer have any need. I'm sorry, get to the New Testament, you no longer have any need for the old, because that's you know that would be like if you if you were a farmer. And you bought your first tractor and you've been plowing mules your whole life. Well, if you've got a new tractor with new plows, why are you going to save your old mule-drawn, hand-operated plow? That's obsolete now. Well, that's how intellectualism in the 19th century looked on Christianity. To give you the exact reading in verse, chapter 11, page 11, I'm sorry, page 11, of your book down there uh, toward the bottom. Goldsworthy put it like this. He said the Old Testament re was regarded as a primitive and therefore outdated expression of religion. It was seen not only as being pre-Christian because it failed by several centuries to be concerned with the events of the gospel, but also as being sub-Christian because it failed to reach the ethical and theological heights of the New Testament. So you see what he's showing us here is that th this is one of the reasons, one of the reasons why the Old Testament has fallen into disuse and disdain because of the intellectual environment of the 19th century that said, right, it's developed, we're, we're, you know, we're in the new now, so all of that is useless. Do you understand the argument? Not, of course we don't agree with it, uh, but I just want you to understand that, that was one, that's one of the reasons why the Old Testament has fallen out of use. A second reason, number two, the opinion became prevalent 
indeed pressing, that conservatives, and I put that word in quotes now, air quotes, conservatives needed to find a way to reconcile the Old Testament's offensive conduct with our modern thought. This morning, in the message this morning, at the conclusion of the message, I, I, I mentioned there in Judges chapter 7 at the end how that the, the, the heads of these two kings were cut off and they literally carried their head back and gave them to Gideon. And I said to you this morning, don't let that bother you. <laughs> don't let that bother you. Uh, so there came in modern times this opinion that the Old Testament had all this really offensive stuff in it that they didn't have a good way to explain or approve. And so the best thing to do then is just chuck the whole thing. Just do away with reading the Old Testament. That's going to be problematic. Okay. Things like, for example, and he lists three, I think. There was the order for the wholesale slaughter of the Canaanites. You remember that well. That's one of the things. Uh, there are the, in the Psalms, we find all these Psalms cursing the enemies of God. And then there was, of course, under the Mosaic Law, there was the wide use of capital punishment. And then again, like I say, just this morning in the message in Judges 7, here's these people's heads being cut off. And <laughs> so here is a second reason. None of these, of course, are the whole answer. All of these are parts of answers. But here is a second reason why the Old Testament had become distasteful to modern, again in quotes, modern man, because they had all this stuff there that they just they didn't know how to deal with it. So the best thing to do was just discount it all and dismiss the whole Old Testament. Thirdly, there is the idea Another, a third reason why the Old Testament has fallen into disuse is that people have felt that it was, and I'm quoting his words, he said they thought it was dry, wordy, cumbersome, and confusing. Dry, wordy, cumbersome. And confusing. Now, and I know if 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 my superiors, <laughs> certainly my superiors in terms of knowledge of history and so forth, those of you present that are my superiors, you will surely applaud at least this statement: ignorance. Of world history breeds this 
awkward unfamiliarity which in turn breeds disdain. Because we are ignorant of all that history by and large, we feel awkward in it. We feel awkward reading about it. We feel awkward reading from it. And so eventually that awkwardness, many, it will result in them just dismissing it. Instead of dealing with the awkwardness, indeed, instead of dealing with the ignorance that underlies it, it's easier just to dismiss it. And Goldsworthy is saying, this is one of the reasons the Old Testament has fallen out of favor. Because we have come to a generation that doesn't have, frankly, doesn't have the historical foundation to read it with any level of understanding. Would you agree with that? I know that's the case with me. I was taught in public school and my, my education was horrendous to say the least. In fact, I, I, I disapprove that it even merits the word education at all. But it left me with such a deficit that just if I may, brother, I'm sure you won't mind if I may use a personal illustration. I could just flip to some place in the Old Testament anywhere and start reading. Immediately for me, that's challenging. Because I have to go somewhere to get some help with contextualizing that verse. Brother John or my wife could flip to that text and start reading. And immediately the whole context is before their minds. It isn't with me. I struggle. I have to go back. I have to get, I have to take the time to put the foundation there that should have already been there. But what Goldsworthy is saying is that most moderns won't do that, don't do that. And so they, they read the Old Testament and it's dry, wordy, cumbersome, and confusing. Because they don't, they don't understand, <laughs> they don't have the understanding of the history to understand what it's saying. Does that make sense? And I know that I have personally, uh, I, I have a problem with that, and I think most moderns do. Most people would salve their conscience for neglect of the Old Testament by a frenzied study of the New Testament so that soon enough the Old Testament drops out of sight completely. Now, let me just flesh that statement out to you. That's actually my statement. That's not his. But what I'm doing is I'm gathering his materials and putting it together for you. <clears throat> and so he's saying, what I'm saying in this statement is that what you see, and he did mention this, what you see happening in modern churches for the most part, 
is just this, what I've called a frenzied study of the New Testament. Uh, they're just, they just, boy, man, they're, <laughs> they get in that New Testament. I mean, they're chewing it up and they're coming up with, especially with regard to the subject of prophecy, eschatology. I mean, oh my goodness, you get these people that are, I mean, I know some brethren. Uh, the Gormans know one of our former elders we love very, very much. Uh, but I know men here in this county, uh, one in particular. I mean, he could sit down and talk for two hours nonstop, giving you scripture references on the subject of prophecy. And hardly has any comprehension of Old Testament institutions at all. So there is this reaction where in modern churches, many of them, where there's just this man, they're just they're just eating up the New Testament. Which, by the way, I will show later. I, I not today, but in this study, we will see that uh, I deny that that New Testament study is valid at all. Because if you remove it from its Old Testament contextualization, you don't have clear and biblical theology. So. But but they they will get on a hobby horse. <laughs> They'll get some field or some area of expertise or some something in the New Testament and just become so engulfed in it that they're they ignore the Old Testament completely. Now, so that was all under my first point, which is why is the Old Testament currently ignored my second point is really another historical note the middle ages saw the development and proliferation of the allegorical method of interpretation and this method became the sole purview of the church of the Middle Ages, which was Rome. In other words, Rome, Romanism prevailing as it did in the Middle Ages, it, and you can read what, what all Goldsworthy said about this, and you can read what others have said about it, but let me just summarize it for you like this. The, the Church of Rome became the custodians, if I could use that term, of the allegorical method of interpretation. That allowed them to take any scripture and give it the meaning they wanted. So it was no longer a grammatical, historical method of interpretation. The allegorical method of interpretation became the rule of the Roman Catholic Church. And in that, in that context, they were able to allegorize all of the scripture. And it was this allegorical method of interpretation. You understand what that is, right? Allegorical method of interpretation. 
that's that's reading. You read something, and rather than it it having a literal meaning, the literal words, you apply to it some allegorical interpretation. Now, there's a difference you understand between interpretation and application. All right, difference between interpretation and application. When when the uh, uh, you know, the, the waters of Jordan, for example. Okay? The waters of Jordan. Those, the literal historical grammatical method of interpretation, hermeneutics, would say that's referring to this body of water, this flowing river in this location, body of water. That's, the historic, the, the allegorical would take that completely away and say, no, no, it's totally, totally talking about uh, uh, crossing over in life, crossing various hindrances in life. Now, you can make an application, and that's not allegorical. We talk about crossing the River Jordan, and we talk about it, use it as an illustration of dying. But that's an illustration that's intended to be uh, not an interpretation, but an application of that River Jordan. Okay? But the Catholic Church, they fostered some say, I don't know, uh, Brother John maybe can share more with it on this, some, some say they actually are the inventors for lack of a better word, they originated the allegorical method. I don't know enough about all that to know, but I do know that they they predominated the influence of the Christendom for ages, and during those ages, the allegorical method was their method, and that method, of course, robbed the Old Testament of its actual historical meanings. So, uh, Goldsworthy has in his lectures that this, this fact, this historical fact of the influence of the Roman Catholic Church and the proliferation of the allegorical method are part of the reason for the downfall of the Old Testament to modern Christendom. Okay? Fair enough. A third point he makes, and, and I do want to make it, uh, on the subject of who needs the Old Testament or why is it not read. Third point is that the, Reform- the Reformation, and I put it this way. These are my words. I said, I, my point, I simply said, the Reformation saved the world. The Reformation saved the world. Because uh, on page 16, Notice what Goldsworthy says. It was the Protestant reformers who helped the Christian church see again the importance of the historical and natural meaning of Scripture. Protestant interpretation was based upon the concept of the perspicuous, perspicuous, 
that is clear and self-interpreting nature of the Bible by removing an authority for interpretation from outside the Bible, which was, of course, the Roman Catholic Church and their allegorical method. They declared themselves to be the sole source of interpretation for the Bible. You couldn't interpret it. That's why Roman Catholic people didn't need a Bible. You don't need a Bible. You don't need to read that. The church will interpret that for you. The Protestant Reformation turned that on its head. So by removing an authority for the interpretation from outside the Bible, the infallible church, which was Rome, the reformers were free to accept and see the principles of interpretation contained in the Bible itself. So the self-interpreting scriptures became the sole rule of faith. Sola Scriptura was the rallying cry of the Reformation. So what, he says down here, so what has this got to do with the Old Testament? It meant that the Reformers were establishing a method of biblical interpretation in which the natural historical sense of the Old Testament has significance for Christians because of its organic relationship to Christ. And then on the next page, 18, old, the Old Testament, at the bottom of that first paragraph, the Old Testament is not the history of man's development, developing thoughts about God, but the whole Bible presents itself as the unfolding progress of God's dealing with man and of his own self-disclosure to man. Now I want to emphasize that last statement. The Old Testament, unlike what intellectualism in the 19th century taught, the Old Testament is not the history of man's developing thoughts about God. But it is the unfolding process of God's dealings with man and his self-disclosure. Right? <laughs> you get that? That's significant. And Goldsworthy makes the point that it was the Protestant, it is to the, in, in terms of the modern, in modern era, it's the Protestant Reformation that we have to thank for that. They went back to allowing the scripture to interpret itself rather than setting an arbitrary authority outside of the Bible for its interpretation. Does that make sense? All right. I'll go very quick and close with these other just three other points I want to make. Fourthly, and we can discuss all of this. We'll go back for anything you want to discuss. Fourthly, as to the who needs the New Old Testament and why should, we, why should we study it, why should we read it, there is an argument for the use of the Old Testament from the New Testament's 
use of it. There's an argument for the use of the Old Testament to be made from the New Testament's use of it. Chapter, sorry, page 19. It is, of course, of great significance. Now listen to these stats. That the New Testament writers constantly quote or allude to the Old Testament. One estimate is that there are at least 1,600 direct quotations of the Old Testament in the New, to which may be added several thousand more New Testament passages that clearly allude to or reflect Old Testament verses. Of course, not all these citations show direct continuity of thought with the Old Testament, and some even show a contrast between the Old and New Testaments. Think of the book of Hebrews. Better, better priesthood, better priest. But the overall effect is inescapable. The message of the New Testament has its foundations in the Old Testament. Down at the bottom, the more we study the New Testament, the more apparent becomes the conviction shared by Jesus, the apostles, and the New Testament writers in general, namely that the Old Testament is Scripture, and Scripture points to Christ. That's, that's the unavoidable conclusion. So the massive weight of evidence of the New Testament's usage of the Old Testament shows why we need to read it and who needs to read it. On page 20, there are two important factors. He says this, to understand, and this is part of, this is really the main reason I want to do this study. Is, is what he's touching on right here. To understand the whole living process of redemptive history in the Old Testament, we must recognize two basic truths. First, that this salvation history is a process. Not that salvation is a process, but the history of its disclosure from God is a process. We have a thing, we have a doctrine we call progressive revelation. Progressive revelation means that God unfolds, he has self-disclosure is the term we used earlier. God's self-disclosure is progressive. He starts with Adam. We have that proto-evangelum, right, in Genesis, and was it 3.15? And he says, that's all we know. That's all, that's all, that's all the gospel Adam had. That's all the gospel Adam had. And over time, God continues to unfold, unfold, unfold himself in progressive revelation. Now, if we see that, if we know that, then you see the value of the Old Testament. How can you throw away 
the first three quarters of that revelation and have any understanding. Okay? So, salvation history is a process. And then secondly, that this process of redemptive history finds its goal, its focus, its fulfillment in the person of Christ. And this principle is the underlying principle of the whole book, the whole Bible, the whole Bible. I I watched recently, I don't want to say too much, I know these things are recorded and I certainly don't want anybody to be offended, but I watched recently a gentleman attempting to teach Sunday school in a pretty sizable church. And he's he's teaching uh, prophecy. <laughs> Go figure. And he got into his the scheme which is laid out, of course, by was Larkin, whoever did the schematics, all the all the charts of dispensationalism. And he got stumbled into this little hole where he was at the point where now all the saints have been raptured. So says he. But then before the king comes back and sets up his kingdom, there are people who get get saved. Air quotes around that. Get saved. I hate that term. But there are people who get saved. So in the class, they start kicking this around. He, he raised a question. He said, now, are they in the church? The church is raptured. They're still here on earth. They got saved, but the kingdom's not set up, so they're not in the kingdom, and the church is gone. Who who are these people? What are they in? Are they in the? That's the kind of confusion that's created by not seeing the continuity of the history of redemption, by not seeing the oneness of the Bible. The oneness of the revelation. This whole revelation. Old and new. That's the kind. And by the way. Just so you know the story. He threw it open to the class. And oh my stars. There were. Mind blowing comments. I mean. Just stuff was coming from everywhere. And nowhere. And it's like. And at the conclusion of it all. He said. He finally just took a deep breath and said, we just don't know. We just don't know. Well, God bless him. At least he's honest. He just don't know. <laughs> that's a fact. But I give you that little illustration to tell you, that's one of the important facts that Goldsworthy brings out. The importance of recognizing that this process of, and this is his words, process of redemptive history. And of course, it finds its culmination in the person of Christ. And the whole book, from beginning to end, Genesis through Revelation, is about this. The whole book. Now, that's two important factors. I'll close with a warning which he gives us 
in chapter, I'm sorry, on page 20, he issues what I consider a warning. Failure to grasp this truth, largely because the proper study of the Old Testament has been neglected and has aided and abetted one of the most unfortunate reversals in evangelical theology. He says one of the most unfortunate reversals in evangelical theology has been this thing, failure to study the Old Testament. The core of the gospel, the historical facts of what God did in Christ, is often downgraded today in favor of a more mystical emphasis on the private experience of every individual. Is that not true? I mean, the whole, we've lost sight of the whole gospel because of this modern insistence on emphasis on your personal experience. He calls it the downgrading of modern theology. Whereas faith in the gospel is essentially acceptance of and commitment to the declaration that God acted in Christ some 2,000 years ago on our behalf, saving faith is often portrayed nowadays more as trust in what God is doing in us now. Biblical ideas such as forgiveness of sins, salvation, are interpreted as primarily describing a Christian's personal experience. But when we allow the whole Bible, Old and New Testaments, to speak to us, we find that those subjective aspects of the Christian life, which are undoubtedly important, the new birth, faith, sanctification, they are the fruits of the gospel. This gospel, while still relating to the individual people at their point of need, is rooted and grounded in the history of redemption. Not in your experience. In the history of redemption. It is the good news about Jesus before it can become good news for sinful men and women. Indeed, it is only as the objective that is redemptive historical, it is only as the objective facts are grasped that the subjective experience of the individual Christian can be understood. Amen. Amen. The objective facts and those objective facts are recorded by inspiration in both testaments, old and new. Okay? Now, for a little uh, brain teaser, we'll go back and discuss because I'm sure some of you have been chomping at the bits to have comment on something I've said. 
my wife greeted me this morning with the greeting. She said, I hope you're prepared to be eaten alive today. That's always an encouraging way to start a day. <clears throat> but uh, in uh, notice that the uh, in the appendix on page 141, there is an appendix to each chapter in this book. And in the appendix, uh, in, in the appendix for this chapter, uh, it's on page 140, 139, 140, and then 141. There are questions for each chapter. Now, I'm not going to go through those with you like a school child. Uh, however, if there's any of them you would like to see, as we move through this book, if there are any questions in these appendices that you would like to talk about, feel free to, we'll stop and we'll talk about them, okay? But just for this chapter, there's only three questions, just I'm pointing it out to you just so you know where it is, page 141, appendix B, uh, chapter 1, what are your what are your greatest difficulties in reading the Old Testament? And I've already described to you mine, it's my lack of understanding of history. I'm talking about just world history. I'm not talking about theology. I'm talking about just secular history. My lack of understanding of history is my biggest impediment when I read the Old Testament. And then why do these difficulties exist for you? Well, for me, they exist because of the horrible education I had or lack thereof. Question two, why is it important to study the Old Testament with the New Testament in mind? And number three, consider the implications of Old Testament study. Consider the implications for Old Testament study of Luke 24, 25, various verses like that. So you see the questions in the appendix are there just, they're, they're just stimulating questions to stimulate your thinking more on the subject that's covered in that chapter. Okay? So, I opened the floor to be eaten. Take up Thomas Brooks on the cover 
I think so. It is unfortunate that we're in a place where we need to do that. Now, let me add to that. Let me take that same thought one step further. I think we would be amiss. I think we would not be helping ourselves if all we did here in this church is study the problem. (laughs) But we are, in fact, setting about to correct the problem. We aren't just studying the problem. We have in place the functions to correct the problem. Because I preach almost exclusively from the Old Testament. And so I am constantly, you might say, battering down this wall in practice. It's fine for us to study about the problem. It's fine for us to study the mechanics of it and even how to correct it, which we will do. But it's no good to do all those studies if we're not, in fact, teaching and using the Old Testament. We are doing that also. And that's the other part of fixing the problem. Right, anybody else? Yes, sir. <laughs> and it truncated everything down to what is the situation. It truncated everything down to a question on the new job. Right. Right. At least make an attempt to fend off this. Yeah. 
theology underlying, underlaid by the, uh, the, the German theological movement. And so we are where we are because of the outgrowth of these things that, that really started with the Enlightenment. But again, uh, the second point I think that has to be made is, and you made reference to it, this, this idea that no one would argue with that there's an ignorance mm. of the Old Testament. He makes that point, he made that point today. But I have to argue that that in itself raises previous questions. Why? Mm -hmm. Why is there that just addressing the ignorance is not enough? Mm -hmm. Because we can fill people's heads with lots of information about the Old Testament. You fill them up until it runs out of the ears. And there will be no better for it unless they come to previous question, which is why that ignorance so greatly changes. And, and we've reached a point where we have two things working at the same time. And I'll just apply two terms to describe it. It may not be totally accurate. One would be a something that's about this wide. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> but they don't know anything else. In fact, they couldn't get out of their own way. Right, right. But they're an expert on something. Sure, they be. sure. And, but, but it's only about a millimeter wide. And right. then at the same time, we have, and you see it in schools as much as anyone, an anti-intellectualism. Yes. Which says... Away with all that. Yeah, we don't even need any of that. Right. I, I have I have a phone and an iPad, and that's enough. Mm. I can look at it up on Google. Mm -hmm. And so we have these two tracks working at the same time, uh, sometimes blending with each other, sometimes separating. But they they contribute to this what what would be the foundation to answer this question is why the ignorance. Mm -hmm. Why the ignorance, yeah. Why the ignorance. In a large measure, I think, John, you're saying this. I'm just restating my own words. In a large measure, modern technology has made its contribution to this problem. Because, as you say, kids say, I've got an iPad, I've got an iPhone, I don't need to know. You know, I, I have the whole world access to my fingers. So that technology itself has contributed, at least, to to this this ignorance that prevails, pervasive ignorance. And I, I like what John said. It's a very important point about the narrow you know, experts. <laughs> Everything now we got to have an expert. You know, it's it's like he said. They've got all the knowledge in the world. On something that's about a millimeter wide. That's it. Tunnel vision. They see nothing else. And I read, I think it was last in the last lecture, I read from the uh, classical magazine about the definition of a gentleman. 
A gentleman is a man who has the ability to see all things with a broad vision. And that's what John's touching on. We've got everybody now wants to be massively knowledgeable, but only about one goofy little thing. And everything else in the world, as far as they're concerned, doesn't even exist. And that, unfortunately, has come into the church. And we've looked at scripture in that same way. It used to be that men of God were, especially men of God, all men, but especially ministers, were known to be men of vast knowledge across many disciplines, not just theology. And they were gentlemen. They were whole men. They were classically minded. And that's that's we need a return to that. Now, I don't personally believe, you may disagree, I don't personally believe that the modern classical education movement is our salvation. I don't believe it, especially not in its current form. But it certainly, I also can't deny that it goes a long way in helping us to address this problem, this narrow focus problem, and also the technology problem. Because if you listen to the professors of classical education, uh, they, they, they do not disdain technology. But they correctly emphasize the fact that in the rearing of your children, it's very important that that be placed properly and that it be supervised properly and that they not lose the old skills of literacy, reason, logic. Those things are emphasized in the classical model, and that's critical, I think. Anybody else have any other comments about this? As you can see from the discussion today, I've not chosen a subject just out of the sky and it just, you know, who cares, who cares kind of thing. This is all very relevant stuff. This is very relevant and pertinent for us especially. With all these young people we have, this, this is critical. This is a critical subject. Our losses, we need to... We need to put the spurs to the horse and post. We need to post, post, post to regain our losses. And I, for one, am the least likely to be able to facilitate that. But in the providence of God, it has fallen my lot. And if I can do nothing more than spur you on, then I have done well. Okay. Yeah. But they're not teaching them. They're not educating them how to get the knowledge themselves. Right.
Right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, that's an old, that's an age old sin problem in men, ministers. Carson in the lecture he's talking about, talked about that some men want to. One reason they don't instruct their people and train their people to study in themselves and is that they want to feel that sense of power of saying, oh, I've got the stuff. I've, I've got all the stuff. Right? You don't have it. I have it. And, and oh, I'm going to give you a little morsel of it today. You know, that's, that, that is a sin problem. <laughs> it's a sin problem in, in men. Yes, absolutely. And the reason that we don't have the, if you may call it, intellectual curiosity about it, is because we don't have spiritual desire for it. Right. Because we have churches filled with goats. Right. So it's a spiritual deficit first and foremost. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we've discussed this in our own families and among our families we've had various discussions of this. Why is it? We run into it, do we not? All the time. Every one of us that I've talked to you, all of you about, we run into this that we, we find a, we have a truth. Here's a truth. Any truth. Here's a truth in scripture. And we try to share it with our loved ones. Because we, we love it. We love the truth. We love to discover and learn of our Lord and learn of his truth and, and get this, gain this revelation. We try to share it and they're like, they're totally, it's not interesting. It's not interesting. And we step back and scratch our head and say, how, how can they not be interested? How can they not be care about this? Well, John has, has answered it for us. The problem is first and foremost spiritual. The lack of interest is not purely intellectual. It is that. Intellectual laziness. But it's not just that. It's a spiritual deficit that keeps them from having a hunger for it. And that's a very good point John makes. Doing that, we have much to say about the virtues of Western civilization. The irony is that we're here 
because of the arrogance of Western civilization. We are ignorant because we have been turned over to ignorance because of our ignorance. You look, for example, at these chief objections which we've all heard about the Old Testament, and it's kind of comical. This, these uh, harsh civil measures that were taken in the Old Testament, capital punishment, so on and so forth. Where most of those people live in those parts of the world, to date, none of these things are difficult to understand or accept at all, because they still govern themselves in exactly the same way. Mm -hmm. We are the people who are tripping over this. They're not tripping over it. They still conduct themselves in this way. These are not foreign or difficult notions. We, however, if you fast forward through time, through the history of Western civilization, we have uh, we've gone through, as Brother Wolf said, we've gone through different phases uh, of pride and arrogance, and we have reduced ourselves to morons who are struggling over things that even unbelievers in a large part of the world have no struggle with. If they're familiar with them, they don't have trouble reconciling to the reality. We did. We did that to ourselves. Arrogance of Western civilization. We know best. Every generation knows this. Another century, another period that the 19th century enlightenment, followed by the Schleiermacher, Schopenhauer, and all the Well, forget all the reason we're going to talk about the exaltation of the spirit of information. It's one thing after another after another. Now here we are with the bumbling morons. <laughs> we did that. Western civilization did that to itself. And now we're trying to correct this problem with the virtues of Western civilization. It's quite ironic. And we're struggling over things. Most of the major objections I've heard myself among people who claim to be Christians, they stumble on features of the Old Testament in large parts of the world, unbelieving world today. Some difficult for them to understand at all. In fact, that their existence is We've done that. 